Okay, so today I'm in Wiltshire with uh, Richard Farquhar. Thanks very much for uh, giving us some time today, Richard, and inviting Pleasure. me to your lovely house here. Um, so just for a, just to uh, the premise here, you're a trustee of Racing Welfare, Iggy's Fund, and a 792nd Point of Life Award winner. Um, famous within racing for walking the courses, raised, last time I looked, half a million quid by not only walking around the courses, but to each of them. Mm. So there's fair achievements there. <laughs> but before we talk about them in depth later, uh, can we go back to your, you know, your sort of, how did you get into this game? I suppose primarily through my father, who was a massive fan of the sport. As a young man, he worked in racing. Uh, after he left school, he went to work at Stable Land in Newmarket for six months. Uh, then had to go off and do national service, which he did for the Green Jackets in um, what is now the um, UAE. Uh, and after he came back, he went to work at Sledmere in Yorkshire uh, it, for a um, few months preparing yearlings for the sales. Moved down to uh, Woodland Stud in Newmarket, where uh, at that time, it seems almost unbelievable that they had a stallion roster then, which comprised of Elicidon, who I think was the last horse to do the the treble of the Donkster Cup, the Goodwood Cup, and the Ascot Gold Cup in a year, in the same year, which Stradivarius then repeated. Never Say Die, who won the 1954 Derby, Hyperion, who won the 1933 Derby, and Rebo had just arrived there. So it was most incredible. He had an amazing season there, and then went to Plantation Stud, uh, where he, during the covering season and foaling season, um, he foaled St Paddy who won the 1960 Derby, which he was the second horse he ever foaled. Uh, he, he just loved the sport, and I got the, I got the bug from him. So, you, and your dad was involved in owning horse, horses in syndicates? Yeah, in a very small way. He, um, he had five children and, and was kind enough and generous-spirited enough to send us all to decent schools and virtually bankrupt himself in the process. So... Um, he was, he was never a punter. He was a very, very small-time owner in syndicates. Um, uh, he had horses, actually mostly Hugh Collingridge in Newmarket, who he got on very well with. Um, and, yeah, he loved the, he loved the sport. But it, it was primarily as a, just a, a massive fan of, of watching it. He was never a punter. I think the, the biggest bet he'd ever have would be a, he'd have a fiver race during Ascot and Cheltenham, which he used to sit on the sofa at home and watch on the telly. And you say syndicates, that would have been fairly rare back in those days, isn't it? Well, no, he didn't get involved in syndicates really until, um, I suppose, the 1990s, I guess. Um, his first involvement with a syndicate per se was a, was a breeding syndicate in 1958. He, um, uh, he was very pally with a guy called Frank Chapman, who went on to become the Footstocks Racing Manager, who he worked with at Sledmere. And uh, Frank... Uh, managed to secure him a job taking a horse called Pipe of Peace, who had been third in Crepello's Derby and Guineas in 1957. He was syndicated to stand in Australia as a stallion. Uh, and my father took him on the boat, six-week passage to Australia, stayed with him through his first season covering mares down there, and, and then came back. So I guess that was his first sort of introduction to to syndicate, but the Piper Peace was one of the very earliest horses to effectively move from Northern Hemisphere to, to Southern Hemisphere. So he went with he went with him. Okay, now it was interesting that you said that your father nearly bankrupted himself sending <laughs> you to a nice school <laughs> because obviously we've talked prior to this. So I know that you was you went to a nice school and you mm. uh, then got into university. 
I did. Um, I, I got in more, I have to say, due to my ability to play cricket than because of my academic abilities. Um, uh, I was fortunate enough to play in the, the Eton Harrow match at Lords, which was a game that was always watched by the guy who effectively scouted young players for Northamptonshire. Um, and so I went off, and he saw me play in that game. I went off and had a county trial, and that kind of got picked up by um, Exeter University. So I got in to Exeter to read languages with grades that really weren't anywhere near good enough. And I didn't particularly want to go. Um, I, I mean, I had a complete blast down there, but um, it didn't really work out. Didn't work out. You were thrown out. I had too much fun. Yeah, I had much too much fun. So what, what was the, uh, why did they give you the heave over from there? Well, I, I think perhaps it could be best summarised by my best man at our wedding uh, said that my university career could be summed up in one sentence, which was that I visited the library once and I still have the book, which probably is about true. <laughs> now, understandably, as your dad you know, sacrificed a lot to give you a good education, uh, he wasn't too chuffed. He was livid. Um, I, I mean, I have to say, at that, at that point, it, we didn't have a very good relationship because my parents split up when I was... I suppose eight or nine. Um, I lived with my mother. I didn't see very much of my father. He had relatively limited access. And uh, to be honest, most of the time when I did hear from him, it was either because I'd had a lousy school report or I hadn't sent someone a thank you letter or I hadn't replied to something. Or So we didn't have a particularly good relationship. But you know, looking back on it, there are many aspects of me getting chucked out of Exeter rather prematurely that were in, uh, unbelievably beneficial. And the number one on that list was unquestionably that I, you know, I, I turned up on my father's doorstep in, in Chiswick and we were almost sort of thrown together and, you know, we built the most incredibly close relationship. I mean, a, a day would not pass when we didn't speak for the last 20 years of his life. Um, that was a massive benefit, as I have to say, was the fact that I then got a job, first job I ever got, working for Labrooks um, for three and a half years, which was... Just such fun, such a wonderful experience, and taught me, frankly, a, a thousand times more than a degree in French and German would have taught me from Exeter University. Right, so you, you came back with your tail between your legs from Exeter mm. to your father, yeah. and was he to do with you getting the job with Labrooks? Well, he'd, he'd, he'd said, uh, in no uncertain terms, that he expected me to get off my arse and get out there and get a job quickly. He didn't particularly care what it was, he just wanted me to get out there and try and make the most of a difficult situation that I had made for myself and 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 so uh, yeah I mean it was crazy every day he'd get back from work and he'd sit me down and say right what have you done today to try and get a job who have you rung show me the adverts you've rung what what, what interviews have you set up anyway in the end uh, there was a Labrooks betting shop in the high street in Chiswick and I thought you know I mean I loved racing by that stage and I thought well I'm sure I could get a job in a betting shop so yeah I mean I literally I walked into the Labrooks shop in Chiswick High Road which were known as run by a guy called Paul Austin, who worked in the business for a long time. And, um, yeah, I got a job. I started working 25 hours a week sitting behind the till of a betting shop in Acton High Street. And I absolutely loved it. And I worked for them for three and a half years. From you know, I was a board marker, I was a cashier, I was a settler. I always loved it. I quite liked the sort of mental arithmetic stuff, you know, going off and you know, learning how to settle bets. And, I mean, I still remember 13 to 8 on is 1.615384. I still remember that. Seven to four on is one point five seven one four two eight. All that sort of stuff. I, I, it was a blast. It was an absolute blast, and I made some great mates who who I still, still see. Still, you know, we have a WhatsApp group, and um, 
we go racing together to what we still call SGB Day at Ascot just before Christmas. And it was, yeah, it was brilliant. Now, can we just rewind a bit? You mentioned the two very nice schools that, that competed at the cricket mm. with each other. Which one did you go to? I was at Eton. You were at Eton. Um, quite, I've spoken to other, other ex-Eton, mm. uh, but quite often they've turned out to be the school bookie or, <laughs> or they've climbed the, the, the wall to get to the betting shop. Was that you as well? I would say I, I definitely wasn't the bookie, but there was a guy, uh, I did economics as an A-level, uh, and uh, one, of the, one of the guys in my class would make prices off his own back on a Saturday morning on a couple of the races of the, on a Saturday afternoon. And so I used to quite enjoy trying to take his eyes out. Um, the guy who, there was an um, evening standard salesman who sat outside the, the school bookshop who was a mine of interesting information. Quite a lot of it would probably come from fellow, fellow Etonians. And yeah, I mean, we used to sort of, sneak off into Windsor and go into the Labrook shop in Peskin Street and in those days I think they were rather more relaxed in betting shops about people under the age of 18 <laughs> coming in having a bet so yeah it was I, I, I was kind of into it by then but you know as I mean not as a, I've never ever really been a punter um, very much from an interest point of view and I guess it was at Eton that you know the day that really completely cemented my love of this sport. I was asked by a, a guy in my house to go to the Derby in 1979 when Troy won um, with his parents, who I think they were involved in the sponsorship of the race that year. And uh, I, I've, I can still see it, you know, in a, in a box on the top of the Queen's stand, seeing Troy come down round Tatham Corner and into the straight. And I, it was just absolutely mind-blowing, beautiful day. And that was really the day that I thought, this is just... Fantastic. I really, really love this. So that was the day. So ha having having been schooled at Eton and then gone to university, albeit briefly, was, I mean, you'd be sort of looked at these days as a bit overqualified to be a betting shop manager. <laughs> so what, but which you were doing by the time you were 21. Mm. Um, so was in the in your subconsciously or consciously, was that a way of getting into involved with racing? Well, it was, it, it was because I hadn't been brought up with horses directly. You know, I'd never ridden. Uh, it, I mean, the idea of get, you know, getting into training or breeding or um, sales or it, I, it was that was there was no way in that I could see, um, and so but a way in which I could be involved was you know fire, working for working for Labricks. Um and it it was brilliant. I mean, I met, I met some incredible people doing it. When I worked in the shop in Notting Hill Gate. The, the artist Lucien Freud was a reasonably frequent visitor to the shop and he'd come in with a satchel stuffed with cash and bet out of it for the afternoon and he was he was a prodigious punter um i remember him coming in and asking for a price after after goritus won the that alleged wonder horse won the oh, that two-year-old race at goodwood whose name i've forgotten um he came in and asked for a price on goritus to win the two thousand guineas and the derby the following year and I said, of course, I'll ring the office. How much are you looking to have on, sir? And he said, well, I'd, I'd like a £10,000 double. You know, this was 1983, I guess. I mean, he was, I remember him, you know, he won about 60 grand off us during Cheltenham one year. I remember he got a, a £120 combination tricast up on the county hurdle. I mean, he was, he was a prodigious punter, an incredibly nice man, fascinating man. Um, yeah, it was just, it was a great, 
great time. And then you went to a betting shop in Hackney. I did. Now, yeah. That must have been. Uh, I did uh, a culture uh, shop. Yeah, it, it, I, I ran a shop in um, in the East End on the junction of Commercial Road and East India Dock Road for about, I suppose, about eighteen months, which which was fantastic, great experience. I, I mean, I really loved it. Um, it. It was the most battered, beaten up old shop. You know, it didn't have any central heating. It had one storage heater and. Quite often that wouldn't work, and you'd come in in the morning, and there'd be, you know, in the middle of winter, and there'd be ice on the inside of the windows and growing off the bandit screen in front of the in front of the tills. And um, I had a brilliant eighteen months or so there, and then this slot came up to run a shop in Sandringham Road in Hackney, which is now quite relatively gentrified. But it, but in those days, it was the sort of northeast London equivalent of Railton Road in Brixton or All Saints Road in um, Labrook Grove. It was if you if you wanted to buy you know, bag of grass, you, and that was where you went. And, you know, all the punters in the shop were, were Rastafarians. Um, most of them were punting out of money they'd made out of selling drugs. The police were completely aware of what was going on. There was a good deal more business going on actually in the shop than there was coming over the counter, people, you know, dealing drugs. And in those days, you know, you weren't allowed, betting shops didn't have air conditioning. They weren't allowed to have the door open. They were treated in very much the same way as sex shops. You couldn't see into a betting shop. Um, so the door was closed all day. I mean, quite often I'd come out of that shop at the end of the day, particularly with night racing, slightly woozy um, uh, from the impact of, of the um, noxious substances being, <laughs> being imbibed by the punters. But it was great fun. Right, Richard, before we go to the city, where you mm. went next. I'm just interested because even when I was going up to see bands and stuff, you know, that sort of part of Hackney, I think it's sort of around there, was like mm. the murder mile, wouldn't it? <laughs> so you know, considering your background, it must have been quite a culture shock. It was. Uh, uh, it was It was a culture shock in a sense, but I'd been slightly prepared for it by working down in um, uh, Burdett Road, um, after whom I imagine that rather good novice hurdler of James Owen is named. Um, uh, I've been slightly prepared for it by working down there because it, it 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 very much taught me that you know if you if you you have to treat people with respect, you know you have to. I'm a great believer that you know you want to get on with people in life, and and I think Labrook's really taught me to do that. I think it also slightly taught me that if you can suss what other people want before they can suss what you want, it it, it probably helps too. But it was yeah there were some there were some very hairy times in there. I remember one day when. You know, we ra we ran out of money, um, you know, because Labrook shops didn't carry much of a cash float. Uh, and if you had a bad day, um, you know, you, the punters had to come back the following day when you'd been to the bank. And there was one particular day we 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 ran out of money in the shop. And a lot of the punters in there, all they were really interested in was um, they wanted to just get one over on you. You know, in the old days when you were getting the, the commentary through the blower, you'd suddenly hear hairs running hackney. And, and 20 Rastafarians would descend on the till, hurling betting slips, some with cash, some without, half of them written very dodgily, so that you know, the 1108 would just be going off and they'd have written 1126. And, I mean, it was, but you know, so it, was, it was an incredible place to learn, to get on with people. Because frankly, if, if, I, if I didn't get on with people, it really could have been quite tricky. But it was, it was a phenomenal experience. I absolutely loved it. Okay, so you went then. You went from the murder mile to the square mile. So, mm. how did what happened? Uh, nepotism. Um, I, I, 
uh, I left Labrooks essentially because the, the one thing I wanted to do was the one thing that an awful lot of other people wanted to do, and that was to get on the race course for them. And that's a very, you know, Labrooks had in those days, God, I don't know how many shops they would have had, 1,500 probably. Um, there were, and there were a lot of people who wanted to get on the race course. That was never really going to happen, I don't think. Certainly at that age, uh, I mean, I was 22, um, 23 maybe. Uh, I, it wasn't, it wasn't going to happen. So I thought it's probably time to move on. And I'd, my first girlfriend, her father ran a fund management business in the city. Um, I always got on incredibly well with him. She chucked me and not the other way around. So I always remained relatively in favour. And he always said, you know, if you think about moving towards the city, you know, give me a ring. So I did, uh, unashamedly. Um, and yeah, so I started working in the city in 1985. So that was the year of the yuppies and Porsches? And... Yeah, I never had one of those. Um, uh, but yeah, it was, it, it was great fun. And to some extent, I went into sales. I used to run around the country selling our investment funds to stockbrokers and financial advisors and so on and so forth. And in many respects, it was the same game. Um, you know, it was getting on with people and forming, forging relationships with people. And, you know, I've always, I remember a guy I used to work with there um, saying to me one day, it doesn't matter whether you're selling pork pies, carpet tiles or unit trusts. People will always buy people first, and I think you know that is that's true in in any walk of life. And so, you know, I've always tried to um, to get on with with people. Um, so, I, and I met a couple of people at, at it was a business firm called Henderson. Uh, so I worked there for three and a half years, and then a group of four of us moved across to work for another fund management business, where we were for I suppose five years. And then we started our own business in 1993, and I was there, yeah, until after I finished walking the courses. So I'd say well over 20 years. Uh, but I moved from sales into trading. I ran the trading desk for them for 23 years. And did you? Um, I assume you continued your interest in uh, horse racing and betting Absolutely. while that was going along. Yeah, very much so. That, yeah, very much so. Um, uh, partly, actually, through my, you know, my old man, who, as I say, was not a punter. Uh, f since the early 1960s, he had, at the major race meeting of the day, he had written down in a little notebook which horse he thought would win each race and work out what he would make or lose to an each way 50p stake on the tote, or back in 1965, probably an each way sixpence on the tote. And he did this literally every single day from 1960 until the day he died, practically. And for the last 15 years that, we used to have a competition against each other over the course of the season and it was it was a source of just massive enjoyment and pleasure and amusement um i remember when i was leading i think in the 16th year i was leading eight seven and in october we're coming towards the end of the flat season competition's very close and on a saturday you know i'd rung him up and find out what he'd selected and the first flat race of the afternoon he picked a 20 to 1 winner that paid 38 pounds on the tote Something's never changed. And um, uh, he, that, that morning, after I'd spoken to him, had had a brain hemorrhage. And he always told the story that the reason he was most, I was most worried about him not pulling through was that actually that 20 to 1 winner moved him ahead in the competition with me, which would have meant that if he had croaked, it would have been eight all. Um, as it happened, he survived. And I went on to win that season to establish a 9-7 lead. But, yeah, I, I just, yeah, we, we talked about racing a lot and yeah, my interest in it 
never ever wane for a moment. Was his not being a punter due to any sort of beliefs, or was it, was it just someone he was never interested in? He was. He was. I mean, he was. He was no mug, my father. And and I think you know when you're when you're sitting, you know, picking horses every single day, and having a theoretical P and L, and over the course of the, God, I mean. 25 years he did it I think he had one profitable season so no he never he was never a he was never a gambler and you mentioned that he had a, a brain hemorrhage but it was your dad's sad death from pancreatic cancer that prompted you to take the uh, the mammoth walking challenge yeah it it was yeah I, I'd when he died I I just got to the age of 50 um or I was just about bit of, yeah about 50 and and I had done nothing in my life for charity beyond growing the most pathetic moustache you've ever seen in your life. It was just horrendous. And and I I just always I, I felt that just once in my life I needed to do something that would potentially make a you know a reasonable difference to. And it, it happened to co coincide with a time that at work I was getting quite quite bored, quite restless of of. Um, uh, you know, increased regulation. That makes it sound like I was a cheat, which I wasn't. But it, it was just, it was regulation that was that was intrusive, and it was spoiling the joy of the job. Not, Sounds familiar. It does, doesn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> I was going to say, um, and uh, so I managed to. I'd come. You know, I remember a great mate of mine who I talked to on the um, in the city rang me up one day and said, Farks, I went to Great Lees yesterday. So I've been to every race course in Great Britain. And I thought, bloody hell, that's impressive. And immediately got the list out and ticked off the ones I've been to. And I think I've been to 28. And, and uh, I sort of thought then, I wonder if I could do something that involved me going to every race course in Britain as a charity project. And I thought, well, no, no one is going to sponsor me to go racing every course in Britain because everyone knows it's a really... There's nothing made me happier, and there's no great effort involved. So then I thought, well, you know, I, I, I can't ride a horse, obviously, because I've never ridden. I can't ride a bike because my left knee doesn't like that angle of flex of riding a bike. And I thought, well, maybe, maybe I can walk. I mean, I, I'm, walking's not too energetic. So I sort of hummed and hard about it. And then I did the sensible thing that so many people do inevitably of all the reasons why I shouldn't do it like you know I've got a family I've got a job I've got you know just so many reasons not to do it so I sort of put it to one side really for a bit and I guess the ultimate catalyst really was was uh, John Hills who I didn't know him at all well I knew him well enough to sort of nod across a paddock um, but he had kids about the same age as mine um, a couple of them have been to the same school that my daughters were at. And when he died of pancreatic cancer, I thought, right, okay. Racing has been hit very hard by pancreatic cancer. John Hills, Desi Hughes, um, Tristram Ricketts around the BHA, Robert Sangster. Um, you know, a lot of people have, have been impacted by it. I thought, you know, particularly with John Hills, because everybody loved John Hills. He was a, he was a great character loved life, lived it pretty hard, pretty fast, loved a glass of red. Um, uh, I thought racing, perhaps racing will really get behind this if I do this for, for pancreatic cancer. Um, 
and I wanted to do it for a racing charity as well because again I thought that would draw more people in uh, and racing welfare certainly in those days was very much the poor relation of the IJF everybody knew about the IJF and the Christmas cards and this that and the other and you know it's never never is it truer than it is right now how important the IJF is and the, the amazing work that they do Racing Welfare effectively looks after everybody else in racing. Everybody. All the answer, all the stable lads, the stud hands, the box drivers, the starting stools handlers, the photographers, you name it, everybody. Uh, and I, I just felt that they, you know, they didn't have the profile, they didn't have anywhere near the, the resources, and yet they had a massive, massive effective stakeholder base of, of people that they were going to have, you know, they'd potentially look after. And typically, you know, if a, if a stable lass gets thrown off a horse on the gallops and sustains a, a really, really bad injury, it, with the best one in the world, it's not going to get the coverage in the racing press, never mind anywhere else, that, you know, some ghastly, awful, horrific thing like the dreadful accidents happened to Graham Lee. Um, so I decided to do it for racing welfare as well. Okay, now... If, correct me if my figures are wrong. I've googled them. Uh, mm -hmm. Two thousand nine hundred and ten miles. Yep. All the UK's race courses, and you race half a million quid, as we mentioned before, mm. for the two charities. I mean, what were the logistics of that like? Uh, they were significant. Uh, before I started the project, I mean, I was acutely aware that there was absolutely no way I could do it off my own back. I was quite lucky that my oldest daughter had just graduated, and she liked her, loves her racing. And I managed to persuade her to come and work with me on the project, basically as soon as she left university. Um, the, yeah, there was a huge amount of planning. I mean, you know, the, the, the race days, because I arrived at each race course on the day of a race meeting, which then turned into a fundraiser. So for starters, it was a question of finding days that each of the 60 race courses could effectively have me. Uh, I, you know, we weren't interested in going when they were doing something for the RNLI or Marie Curie or whatever because we wanted to be standing on the gate shaking buckets at the end of the day and, and doing all that so logistically um, it, it was a huge project but uh, you know I, essentially all I did I just I walked and I talked and my daughter did everything else she did the social media she did the branding she did the PR she did the marketing she did the event planning the liaison with the race courses I mean she did an unbelievable job and I could not and not stand the fact she also dropped me off at the start of every day's walking and picked me up at the end of every day's walking uh, I, I could not possibly have done it without her so um, how long did it take you to do from flash to bang I left Newmarket's Roly Mile in the middle of March and I uh, to walk to Toaster, that was the first leg, and the last leg I walked back to the Rowley Mile from Huntingdon uh, in April the following year. So I walked on about 195 days of that 13 months. Um, yeah, it was it was brilliant. And were you sort of holding then the city? They were you were the boss by then, were you working for your own firm by then? I wasn't the boss but by, by any stretch, but um, they very kindly um, gave me a sabbatical so they very kindly kept paying me and I spent when I was walking or you know they just finished walking they were happy for me to crack on and do that and yeah that, and they were brilliant I couldn't you know I couldn't have done it without a lot of people daughter primarily but also Lion Trust who were who were very very generous in terms of giving me the time off to do it.
Um, Richard, so you've, you've done the walk. Mm. How, were you already a trustee of racing welfare or have they taken you in? As no, a, I wasn't. Um, uh, that, would, that, uh, that followed. Uh, they um, asked me to become a trustee having finished it. Um, which I was thrilled to do. I'm, I'm still a trustee, so I, I do a, a nine-year stretch um, as, as a trustee. I think I've got, I think I've got two to go. So this was a decade ago. You did the 2016. I finished the walk. Okay, so I mean, what does that entail? Obviously, keeping your eye on the money, I suppose. Uh, the... Yeah, it's uh, it's not that time-consuming. Um, it's you know helping you know, bring a, a degree of experience about financial markets to the finance committee and um, uh, fundraising to the fundraising committee. Um, it's I mean I I love it. It's it's a charity that I am incredibly passionate about because it does make an enormous difference to a considerable number of people's lives. Um, uh, it has grown significantly in public awareness terms. I mean, I certainly remember when I was when I was doing walking the courses. So I went round a paddock um, and just leaned over the rail and asked people what they knew about the injured jockeys fund. Everybody knew about the injured jockeys fund. They went racing. Absolutely everybody. You say, what do you know about racing welfare? Honestly, I think ninety percent of people either had never heard of it or thought it looked after horses rather than human beings, um, uh, and so it's it's also been a lot about raising public awareness and the trust the the, the fund i think um the charity has been incredibly fortunate to have uh, hired dawn goodfellow as chief exec many years ago well i say many years ago it was actually funny enough it was during when i was walking um when she became chief executive i rang her up and said you know i've currently got quite a decent platform to talk about racing welfare because most race courses I go to, I'll do an interview with whoever the race day presenter is about racing. Is there a particular message that you as the incoming CEO want me to talk about? And Dawn said, well, it would be great to meet up. And I said, well, listen, when I'm next back in, you know, not walking, she said, no, I've got a much better idea. Why don't I come and walk with you for a day? And I thought, I like that. This is, this is clearly a doer. So Dawn came and walked with me between Doncaster and Pontefract and uh, she's been an, an absolute inspiration and an incredible driving force behind that charity and has made, you know, has a great team of people um, and I have the utmost respect for the, the charity and the people who work for it. I'm assuming you raised the bar somewhat with your contribution after the walking. Well, I, I mean, I think it, I mean, it helped. Um, quarter of a million quid helps most charities. Um, uh, and, you know, it made a, yeah, it did. It did make a difference. Um, if we could find someone every year who could raise quarter of a million pounds for racing welfare, I think racing welfare would be extremely happy. And it's not just racing welfare. It's um, tell us about Iggy's Fund. Spoke Capital F U N with a D. Yes, um, Iggy's Fund is a, a very recently established charity that was set up by the brother and friends of a really phenomenally wonderful man called Alan Eggleston who was a professional cricketer. He played cricket for Kent. He, I think he won seven test caps for England. Um, fast bowler, real character. Um, and after he retired from the game um, with, a, I think, a back injury, um, he developed a brain tumour uh, and lived with this inoperable brain tumour for 
I mean, north of 20 years, and I met him on a charity golf day somewhere. He was our sort of sporting celeb with the three of us who turned up, and we were, we played at a course down in Kent, or we, I say we played, we played for about 20 minutes, and then the heavens opened, and there was no more play, and we sat in the clubhouse all day, and I got, and he just became a great mate. Um, so I, uh, I've been involved with his golf, he had a golf day for years and years and years, uh, to raise money for the Brain Tumor Society, and and sadly, after, uh, he died a couple of years ago, um, and Iggy's fund, which is is set up to effectively do a whole range of things, from raise money for brain tumor research, support the families of uh, people with brain tumors, uh, to support young people get into and enjoy sport where they are financially challenged to a point where actually being about you know getting to matches kit all that sort of stuff um it, it, it's it's a brilliant charity and and you know iggy was a an absolutely inspirational character as someone who was dealt an unbelievably bad set of cards lousy hand of cards and really made the most of it. incredible humor incredibly stoic unbelievably brave i mean just a wonderful man i loved him to bits and um yeah, so that when this charity was set up, they asked me to become a trustee. I was thrilled to do so. Okay, now you've, you've left the city now, mm. and you work full-time in racing as an advisor to trainers. Yeah, I, I, when I, uh, having got back to the, the sort of desk day job after walking the courses, you know, having spent 13 months walking the fat end of 3,000 miles around the country at three and a half miles an hour and seeing what an unbelievably wonderful country we live in, to go back to sitting in front of eight Bloomberg screens for 10 hours a day in an office in the middle of central London was it had lost any possible <laughs> shine that to keep me there so um yeah so I, I jacked that in uh, and um uh, the first business I got involved with, which I'm still involved in to a, to a small extent is a business called the racing manager which is a communications platform for trainers and owners and syndicates to effectively try to a give owners a more interesting and engaging experience supplying them with loads of information about their horses whether it's entries and decks with time form race cards attached whether it's you know giving the trainers an app which enables them to to update with voice notes and pdfs and um uh videos and photographs or form alerts where you know your horse runs in a race and finishing the first four will tell you every time the other three that finish in the four. It's just it's a it's a mass of stuff that we send, which makes the ownership experience more enjoyable and engaging. And it also saves a good deal of time for trainers and their staff because rather than sending out you know a series of emails saying your horse has been entered running this race or that race or that race, we do it all for them, which which releases time. So is, it, is this something that you came up with yourself? Or no, is you got involved no, with? I I got involved with it. Um, uh, it had been. They'd been building it for a little while, and they'd got to a point where they wanted to go out and talk to, um, you know, trainers and owners and syndicate managers and so on about it. And one of their shareholders suggested it might be worth talking to me about whether I could help them because having spent eighteen months on walking the courses, with <laughs> I'd got to know an awful lot of people reasonably well in racing, and so so I worked with them for, and I still do, um, uh, and it's a fantastic. It's a brilliant, brilliant platform. Um, it's inexpensive and it just, it, it enhances the experience for, for owners, as I say. Um, 
so I still do that. And, and more recently, over the past couple of years, I've been working with a couple of trainers, um, essentially on the basis that, uh, in my experience, the vast majority of trainers are, what they really want to do is look after horses, train horses, get horses to win races. They're typically not, in my experience, and this is by no means a, you know, a broad brush statement, but there are plenty within racing who are, who would view themselves as horsemen rather than businessmen or women. Um, and uh, I felt that uh, with my sort of background and um, experience and understanding of the business world, that I may well be able to add value to their businesses, whether their, you know, whether their issue was getting a message out into the wider racing world about you know, what they do and how they do it and how they train their horses. I mean, a, a great example would be, you know, when we set up this business in the city, we, we made our fund managers sit down and articulate, write down on paper how they ran their money and why they ran their money that way. Where was the evidence to support that? And the thinking behind that was entirely that, you know, no approach works all the time in exactly the same way that no trainer has a great year every year because, you know, I mean, it just happens that you go through a, a, a lean spell. Your horses aren't well, and bad haylage, just not a great set of horses. It happens. But if, if your owners have bought into you effectively by dint of understanding what you do and how you train horses, and they bought a process rather than simply, you know, a track record, um, they're much more likely, I think, to stick with you when you have a, an average year or a below average year. Um, so, you know, and, and different trainers have different issues. But, you know, if you think about, you know, a training yard with, say, 50 horses and 25 full-time staff, if you take that sort of business in terms of scale, in terms of number of people and the amount of money they're turning over, you put that in the real world, in the real world, a business like that would have someone working on HR, it would have someone working in a sales and marketing capacity, um, it might have someone working in a PR, I mean, it's a broader-based business than simply a trainer and a secretary. And, uh, you know, I felt that there were potentially a lot of trainers out there who might benefit from having someone to come in and just just help. And the first trainers I worked for uh, and still do, and I absolutely love it, are Dan and Claire Kubler, um, who I have the utmost respect for, the two extremely intelligent people. Dan's got a, a degree in equine science from Sancester. Claire's a Cambridge University graduate, uh, was a forensic accountant for PwC. Uh, they are extremely able people. They have a, a brilliant process for training horses. I think they would admit, and I'm not ashamed to say this, uh, that their weakness is getting out there and actually asking people to send them horses and grow their ownership base. And I think they've, you know, that's something they've found difficult. And so I, I've worked with them, as I say, for a couple of years in essentially getting the message out of, you know, what are they about? You know, what is it about Kubler Racing that means you should send them a horse? You know, and uh, their, their method is, I think, now pretty proven. They've taken horses from other people's yards, like Astro King, for example. You know who they bought at the horse in training sale for thirty six thousand guineas. I mean, in the context of buying horses these days, that's buttons. Um, 
uh, for a horse that was then rated 99, who finished second in consecutive Hunt Cups for Sir Michael Stout. They took him back to Sarsen Farm, and in his first season there, he's won a Heritage Handicap at the Ebor meeting. He was touched off in the John Smith's Cup by the width of a fag paper. He won the Cambridgeshire off top weight, which no horse had done in 134 years, um, and finished an incredibly unlucky sixth in the um, International Trophy at Bahrain last week. You know, and it's not just with him they've done it. They did it with a horse called Anderleep, who they got rated 65 in June last year. He's won six races, and they got into 94. Percy's Lad. You know, they are, they are a tremendously good team, and they've got a great team of horsemen behind them. So I, I, I work with them, and I work with Warren Greatrex on the same basis. You know, Warren is one of the very few trainers who's trained four grade one winners in the, in the UK and Ireland. There, there really aren't very many of them about by his own admission, he went through a pretty lean spell um, when horses weren't healthy and he was in what I think was widely acknowledged to be a pretty unhealthy yard. Um, and then he had the nightmare of dealing with, um, he lost a couple of lads to suicide for reasons that had nothing whatsoever to do with the yard. But, it, you know, as someone who felt, you know, a bit like, I think, I think as many trainers do, a bit of a father figure to his, to his staff, it hit Warren terribly hard. Um, and... You know, so I've been working with Warren on, on, you know, partly just helping to sort of build the confidence level and try to get more horses in the yard and try to get people into the yard to see what... And uh, He's now in um, Oliver Sherwood's old yard. It was, it was bought by a guy uh, called Jim Bryce. Um, and they have spent... Uh, he's spent a lot of money on it. And it has the finest facilities of any training yard I've ever been in. Um, and you know, Warren's, Warren's humming now. He had a great year, best year for five years last year, culminating with Bill Baxter winning the Topham. He's got a wonderful group of, of young horses, and I think he's very much on the up. So essentially what I'm trying to do is to, to help them in areas where they are not strong. What they really want to be doing is just training horses. Warren wants to be riding Bill Baxter out, not sitting in the office worrying about, you know, where the owner's coming from or how he's going to syndicate this horse or whatever it may be. So, yeah, so that's what I do. OK, Richard, and finally, a bit more about you. Mm. The 792nd Point of Light Award from Theresa May when she was the Prime Minister. Can you briefly tell us what that was? Uh, yeah, that was a bit of a, that was a, bit of a shock. I, I, I must confess, I had never heard of the Point of Light Award um, when, when I got it. Um, uh, it's the Point of Light Award, which I think was set up by George Bush Senior in the in in the States, um, uh, and it effectively recognises people, volunteers who've done something uh, a bit, whether it's nuts or just rather wonderful, to um, help. Um, and nominations go in, and and I think the UK took it up in about two thousand and fourteen. Um, and yeah, I was the 792nd recipient of this this award, and this letter from Downing Street came through the door, which was a bit of a shock to the system. Uh, they've done 200, well, say 3,000 miles for sake mm. of argument. <clears throat> is there another challenge in you, or is that enough? Uh, yeah, I mean, inevitably, a few wags suggested, what am I going to do next? Do it in Ireland, or do it in France, or wherever? I'm definitely not doing that. Um, the answer is there isn't really, but but you know there are projects that you know, Racing Welfare are working on every year, fundraising events, and one of the things that they've got penciled in for September next year is to uh, to do a charity walk on the along the Jurassic Coast, 
Um, and I, not surprisingly, they sort of targeted me as a pretty obvious person to front that for them. Um, so, yeah, I suspect the trainers might be coming out again for that, but it's not going to be anywhere near 2,910 miles. That I can promise you. Brilliant. So on that note, Richard Farquhar, thank you very much. Pleasure.